The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. Well, welcome to the Murder Shelf Book Club podcast. I am your host, Jill. This is episode 83, Survivor Thriver, my interview with the author of Frozen in Fear, the true story of surviving the shadows of death, Jane Carson Sandler. I always feel so blessed when the authors engage in this process of presenting these fantastic books to you. Having both the author and the survivor This is extraordinarily special, and I greatly appreciate Jane's chutzpah. Before we kick in, announcement. I am on podcast row again at CrimeCon24 in Nashville, May 31st to June 2nd, 2024. If you need your ticket, you can save 10% using my code. One word, all lowercase letters. Murder Shelf. And I hope I can help make CrimeCon a little bit more affordable. Does a Nashville meetup sound like fun? I will see what the schedule looks like and try to find a location for us. It may well be in the bar. (laughs) We had such a great time last year. And I will have on my Murder Shelf Book Club t-shirt so you can find me. I will see you there, murder bookies. If you have listened to my three episodes on Frozen in Fear, then you know Jane Carson Sandler's story. But in case you have not, Jane served her country in the Air Force, retiring as a full colonel after a stellar career in nursing. She married, had a son, and was stationed in California, where she was going to college when she was attacked and raped by the East Area Rapist, victim number five. This day changed her life, and her book details the hows and the whys and the two steps forward and one step back of recovery and how she regained her footing to live a positive, productive, and helpful life with God's help. I strongly urge everyone to listen and to read her book. It is meaningful, powerful, honest, and I learned so much. So, I am joined by Jane Carson Sandler, who I am so fortunate to have met previously at several crime cons. Jane Carson Sandler, thank you so much for joining me on the Murder Shelf Book Club podcast. It's my pleasure, Jill. Oh, I'm happy to be joining you today. I've been looking forward to it. Oh, this is really, it's really a privilege. Thank you so much for writing your book. I found it very uplifting. Hear this terrible story about this terrible trauma, and I know that sounds perverse, but your story is not just about one day. Your story is about how that one day maybe affected your life, and you've lived a wonderful life. So thank you so much for writing that. I still hope people will buy it because, as you say, it's just not about the rape. It's just about you know so much more with my alcoholism and my and my health issues and 
you know, how God was there and, you know, brought me through everything, everything, and especially taking away my addiction. That was a miracle. So when someone says, do you believe in miracles? I say, oh, my goodness, yes. You've lived the miracle. Yeah. Many of them, actually. So blessed. I truly have been blessed. It's been, I don't know how many, 40 some years now Mm -hmm. since my attack. Of course, the worst thing about the assault was was the fear. That's why the name of the book is Frozen in Fear, because I wasn't I wasn't even paying attention when I was being raped. My attention was where did he put my son? Did he kill him? Where is he? Because he he tied us up, both of us. Mm -hmm. Yes. And he gagged us. He did the same to my little three year old. So he had no idea where he had put him and that's what I was that's what the fear was about. And then when he was carrying these sheets. What is that? I have no idea. I thought, this is his MO, but what? That was scary, too. Why are you tearing the sheets? I thought for sure he was going to hang us or strangle us or do something. I had no idea. Why would you tear sheets? I think this was his ritual. Gave him time to think, what's my next step? What's my next step? Of course, then he went into their kitchen and fixed food and was in and out of the refrigerator. Sick. Well, we know there's something seriously, seriously wrong with the guy. But the recovery from it, how you did not let it get you down. Again, it, the recovery is not something that took place in 10 minutes, but you were able to focus in, decide that you were not going to let this thing dominate your life, that you were going to be in control and made that happen. It took me a few months to decide to do that. After my attack, I was just a mess, as you can imagine. Yeah. And, you know, I was in fear of this perpetrator coming back. So I think it took me at least three months to get to the Rape Crisis Center. And once I got there in Sacramento, then that's when my healing began. Yeah. In the aftermath, knowing that he knew where you live, mm-hmm. that would have just been terrifying. Oh, it truly was. And we had. Oh, gosh. We slept every night. My husband and my son and I slept every night in bed together and, of course, had all the doors locked. He had put an alarm system on the house and then also had a little button behind my bed that I could push. So we thought we were, you know, pretty well set. But, you know, this guy was so clever in so many ways that, you know, you never knew what he could get through. So it was still a fear. And all the hardware stores in Sacramento were sold out. And, oh, my goodness, everybody was living in fear at that time. Well, like I said, that you pulled yourself out of this, going to the Rape Counseling Center. And let's face it, you also didn't just go. You started volunteering and helping others. Well, at that time, the detective that was helping me, his name was Richard Shelby. He asked me if I would go out and speak to other women that had been raped. And I did. And actually, some of them had been raped by the East Area Rapist. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of eerie. But uh, that helped them. And again, that helped me as well. So that was therapy. Plus, at the Rape Crisis Center, when I was there, I met other women that had been assaulted, not just by the East Area Rapist, but by other assailants. And then I realized that their reaction to their rape was similar to how I was feeling. So then I knew I wasn't going crazy, that my feelings were real and they just weren't mine, that others shared the same, the same ones as well. 
See, that is the uplifting part that women coming together, helping each right. other, talking through the difficulties. Because who else could understand what you've been through but another woman who had been through it? You know, that is so true. That is so true. And when I facilitated a group uh, for about five years, not long ago here in uh, Buford at our rape crisis center, uh, all the women in there had all been assaulted. And it's so much easier to to talk to someone that's been through the exactly the same experience. Well, not the same experience, but the same sort of trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, because we, we get it. We understand each other. You know, we know where each other's coming from and the aftermath that can happen after that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. One of the things that you write about in your book and and I called it controversial because I know it's not for everybody, is forgiveness. Well, as I, I said in my story, I am a Christian, and I knew that it's forgiven us, forgive me, so I need to forgive others. But in the beginning, I thought, can I ever forgive this monster that raped me? Yeah. But he was controlling me in the sense that I had this backpack that I was carrying just full of hate and anger and feelings of revenge and it was it was actually weighing me down and I was thinking about it all the time and once I just said you know once I just forgave him I got rid of that and I I was much healthier at that point mm-hmm. but I'll never forget and you know sometimes I wonder did I really forgive him well I'll never forget what he did so that's for sure well I, I do think there's two very very different things forgetting and forgiving but you got there, and I don't think everybody can do that. I don't think so either. Because people say, how can you forgive someone that did something so, I don't even know what the word is. Life-altering. Well, yeah. Yes. I mean. Yeah, exactly. How can you forgive them? So, and I went, it's just something that personally I just had to do because the more I carried that around with him, the more he was really controlling me in a sense. So, I had to get rid of it. Negative emotions are really exhausting. They are. I mean, if you really get worked up and you're really, really angry at someone and you're just yelling, you can't physiologically maintain that for long because your body exhausts. You just have to let it go. I'm angry with someone right now, and I don't get angry very easily. I should say I'm more disappointed, but, you know, the more you hang on to that, it really kind of eats at your gut after a while if you don't do something with it. So you do have to, to let it go. That's what I mean by the uplifting part. And I'm not saying it was like instantaneous. You have lived a life of service for other people, whether it was in the military when you were caring for people and nursing and you know helping people with, you said, very serious injuries. And then you continued that throughout your life. And then volunteering at the different centers You're putting yourself out there. I really feel like, you know, God saved me. I could have very well been killed that night, and my son as well. So, you know, I have to give back in any way that I can. I was his fifth victim, and I was very fortunate to be his fifth victim because after my assault, he became much more violent. Yes. Later, he's killing people. I have to ask you. When they made the DNA connection between Ear and the original Night Stalker, and you realize that this is the same guy, 
what on earth? I mean, did that trigger a whole new level of trauma? Because now, now he's a serial killer. Exactly. And he still knows where I live. And uh, is he going to come back? I have no idea. And I know, I don't know how long he's stopped me. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. he made that comment that they, I saw you at the officer's club. Yeah. Know. Well, the other thing, too, he said, we saw you at the O Club. Oh. Nancy. And so you know he's military because you wouldn't say O Club, you'd say officer's club. So that was kind of strange. Like yeah. I just did. Exactly. So any place that I went, and I was in the reserves at the time, so I was spending weekend at Travis Air Force Base. Oh my goodness, is he in my squadron? Is you know, does he work in the officers' club? You know, who is this guy? I had no idea. I did think maybe just because of the fact that this guy could he was very athletic, could leap fences and he knew so much about how to enter and, and leave a, a property without being caught. You know, maybe he had military background, maybe he was a cop. I didn't know, but he certainly had some of those attributes. Certainly did. He had both of those attributes. Yes, he did. Yeah. Well, he's where he needs to be. And and he's going to be there for 23 hours a day. He gets maybe, I think it's every other day, he gets an hour out, which, you know, is like in an open air patio on concrete. That is not to be expected to be spending his retirement. You know, 100 miles an hour, coasting on down the highway, feeling the wind blowing, you know. Such a phony when you'd, you'd see him, well, either in on TV or in person, and he comes in in a wheelchair just looking half dead. <laughs> and then, of course, when we gave our impact statements, and he said he was sorry, and we all, we all wanted to throw up, thinking, you're what? You're what? You're standing up, number one, and you're sorry, number two. Oh. That was a lot to swallow, I'll tell you. Even then, he's still the the monster that he is. Yeah. Yeah. Phony, liar. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to make myself appear frail so I get sympathy. Yes. I have sympathy for you. (laughs) Oh, what was he thinking? What was he thinking? I don't know. He must be thinking that he has this all-powerful aura or something. That he's just such a genius that I'm going to take to the wheelchair. Oh, and I'll get all this sympathy from people. It's like, what? Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Oh, that that yeah. kind of narcissism I can definitely do without. Very sick mind. That's for sure. Very sick. Yeah. So I'm just glad that part of my life is, I think it's been about, what, it was 1976. So it's been quite a few years. Yeah. It's a long time to wait for justice. And that's why I wanted to focus on the rape victims. A lot of the coverage is always about the Golden State Killer, the serial killer. And there's a lot of women there who were were so brutalized and so traumatized. And I wanted to highlight these stories, which is why I was so happy to do your book. I have incorporated a lot of the victim impact statements from some of the other victims as well. And uh, giving them voice and having people hear what they said, I think, is really important. I think one thing that was just incredibly important was when Bonnie was able to speak her heart, when I was able to read her impact statement to D'Angelo. I don't want you to give away any confidences, but 
can you tell me more about that? Because my heart goes out to her. I should mention that Bonnie was Joe D'Angelo's ex-fiance. So here's this poor woman, right, who 60 years ago breaks up with this guy she knew for a year. Fast forward, he's arrested, and she is thrust into the world of true crime, news reports, cameras, interviews, digging up old engagement announcements. I mean, she didn't ask for any of that. She's just going along, and she's leading her life. And and then, wow, suddenly, bam. But she handled it so well. She was so gracious. Yeah. Truly. I don't know that I leave me out of this. That happens so long. Yeah. But she had such great insights, you know, into, well, why did you break up? And she was absolutely right to to do what she did. <laughs> Clearly, her intuition, that gut instinct that this was not right was the correct thing. I know. It's so true. And now the woodwork here. So cool. Actually, Bonnie was, I guess we were at auditorium at, at Cal State at one of the, the times that D'Angelo was there. And Paul Holes came over to me. Oh, he knew we were having a get-together at Carol Daly's. And he said, would you mind if Bonnie came? And I went, oh, my goodness, no, I want to meet Bonnie. So she came, and we were just all over her, asking her all kinds of questions. Just We just wanted so much to get to know her. She was lovely, so kind, so brave. And so we just became friends. She's amazing. And when I went back for my impact statement, I stayed with her the night before. And of course, she couldn't give an impact statement because she wasn't one of his victims. Hmm. She had been, but not in that sense like we were. So I said, well, Bonnie, you know what? I'm giving my impact statement. I could probably say something on your behalf. So she wrote something out and she stood next to me when I gave mine. And I was able to read this little probe from her. To D'Angelo, and he didn't even blink. He just stood there, look on his face like he's dying. Yeah. That was way cool. So she got to say something to him, even though he didn't respond. He didn't respond to anything. Because when I started my impact statement, I said, D'Angelo, I said, look at me. Look at me. Mm -hmm. He's a coward. Of course he didn't look at you. Yes. I am so, so glad that she got to have a say. And then through you, again, reaching out to other people, uplifting them. You know, I love that you were having a party at Carol Daly's. Oh, Carol Daly was my hero. She was the one that took me to the emergency room after my assault. The first folks to interview me were policemen. And I didn't want to talk to any men. And And then Carol shows up. So she was amazing. And she took me to the ER in Sacramento. And then sat there with me for more than an hour. And I just looked so haggled. Oh, my goodness. I had blood on my blouse and my hair was all a mess. And I was truly a hot mess. But she had to leave because, my goodness, she had work to do. And didn't have cell phones then. The phone was in the car. Right. So she couldn't even talk to anybody. So I had to go in and have the exam by myself, which wasn't a nice experience. The doctor must have thought I was crazy bananas because one minute I'm sobbing, sobbing, sobbing. And the next minute I'm, oh, my God, I'm alive. My son's alive. And he probably thought this girl needs a psychiatrist. And then I didn't have anybody from the rape crisis center with me. So I was alone. Mm. And then you have to have the painful shot of penicillin and the morning after pills. And yeah, 
or get a venereal disease? Probably. Look at all the women that he was raping. Yes, exactly. And how rapid it all was. You know, he escalates and it's like constant. At some points, there were two a week. Yes, yes, it was. And I have so many of the newspaper articles of his assaults. I still have them. And, you know, you pick up the paper and there it is again, 27, 28, just kept going on and on and on. It was really scary. Really scary. Yeah. Nobody knew where he was going to strike next. Yeah. So, scary time. It is. And you came through it. I mean, you get to other trials. This is this book is not only frozen in fear, but it's surviving the shadows yeah. of death. Yeah, I wanted you to revisit the trying to sunbathe peacefully in your backyard. And just as you think the fear and trauma is subsiding. Right. I feel so much better. We're doing good. Bill, he's away for the weekend. Uh Uh-huh. And I'm going to just sunbathe in my backyard. Uh, That's what I tried to do. My son was asleep. and I laid down my recliner type of bed in the backyard and undid the top of my bikini and laid on my stomach. So pretty soon, I felt some pebbles on my back. And I thought, what is that? And I thought, oh, it's just the wind, you know, stirring up some dirt. But then I felt them again. And I thought, ah, ah, someone is throwing pebbles at me. So I get up and grab my top Ran inside, called the police, and of course they knew who I was because it was the past October when I had been assaulted. So they were there in a heartbeat, and uh, they ran through my backyard and climbed over this high fence. And I don't know, I had, I don't know who did it, but I jumped in too, and I cleaned my hand. I really should have gotten a couple of stitches. I didn't care. I'm just racing to find out who was the hysteria rapist. It turned out to be some old guy walking a trailer. He just decided that he was just going to do this for kids. Oh, my gosh. So I don't think they arrested him or did anything. And then the police drove me home. And then my son and I went over to a, a friend's house for the evening. And I still have a scar in my hand. In fact, I'm looking at it right now. Every once in a while, I'll look at it. Uh, ah, so there's just a few things that remind me of my assault. And one is you know, staring at the scar on my third finger on my left hand. And and the other is when uh, I'm watching a TV show and I, I see someone, some guy in a ski mask and that just, oh, I have to, I have to turn away from that. Or when I hear helicopters overhead, which, you know, happens pretty frequently. And then I think, oh my goodness, that reminds me of right after my attack, they had like the helicopters were flying over flashing beams of light down in the neighborhoods to see if they could, you know, find the each area rapist. Flash them out. That went on for quite some time. So oh. Yeah. And then anytime I hear someone yell, shut up, and that, you know, D'Angelo said that to me multiple times. Shut up, shut up, shut up, or I'll kill you. Shut up or I'll kill you. So I don't like that word. <laughs> no, no, you wouldn't. Other than that, my husband said to me, why do you like to watch Law & Order SUV? So I like this gal, Mariska Harriske. Yeah, And I yeah. love the way she talks to the victim. She's so kind. And, and I've learned some things from her. There's a reason that show's been on for 20 years. 
It has been, hasn't it? I know. She's amazing. She was just on the Frank People magazine. Yes. Sometimes, too, I need to leave true crime and look at the fiction. And even if it's kind of reality-based fiction, sometimes you just need to, you know, I'm going to read a novel. We all need a little bit of a break. It does weigh on your soul. Uh, It truly does. So, But I'm good now. I am very good. I'm moving on with my life. In fact, this Sunday I'm reading in church, which I enjoy doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm good. Didn't you do missions to the Dominican Republic? I did. I did about, I'd say, five of them. We went with a group from the Charleston area, uh, Dr. Hall and his wife, Joy. She was a nurse, and he's a, he was a physician. And they still go every six months over mm-hmm. to this little village out in the fields and take care of these folks that, oh, my goodness, they're just so poor. But they're so grateful for the care that is given to them. They, you know, a lot of them are diabetic, so they have heart conditions. They just come in with an injury that we uh, fix in some way. I remember, and besides just being seen by a doctor and being given medications, they also receive a little goodie bag with like toothbrushes and face cloths and soap, that sort of thing. And then they get a pair of glasses, which for some is a miracle. This one nurse brought in this little boy that uh, was dizzy and he had the worst headaches. And she said, I'm going to just try something. And she found these glasses for this kid. And, you know, the minute he put them on, he could see, and he wasn't dizzy anymore. It was a miracle. It was just an absolute miracle. And then after we see these patients, we actually do the clinics inside of a church. Then we go out to the homes. I shouldn't even call them homes. There's shacks that are falling down and provide care out there. And that is just, oh, my goodness, to see how some of these people live and you know big wounds folks that can't get into the into the church you know big ulcers on their legs and so we care for them out there as well i'm not going last year because my my husband to be 90 this month so i'm staying home for the time being that's probably a good idea just traveling and getting through the airport and security and it's just become so complicated Yes, and exhausting. Mm-hmm. I think it's a fabulous thing. That, and again, I point out that it's uplifting that you are serving, helping, providing care to the most needy amongst us. We have thrift shops around here. I would take a lot of clothes with us. These little kids would just go crazy, just some of these cute little outfits. Because a lot of them don't even wear shoes on these dirt roads. Mm-hmm. And the goats are running around and the pigs are running around. So I always love to see their eyes light up when they get just a t-shirt, maybe Superman on it or something. It's a joy. It's a joy. Yeah. See, I think that's powerful. And I think that's that's focusing on what you want to accomplish in your life. I think it's a powerful lesson for people. Well, thank you, Jill. I appreciate that. I think you're a great role model. Well, I appreciate that. I do. In your book, you mentioned that you wrote a pamphlet, and your goal was to write down for for rape victims, to give them at least a sense of here you find yourself and 
these are the kinds of emotions and things that you're going to feel. You said it was very therapeutic for you in doing the writing. Um, It didn't actually get used and utilized in the hospitals, but even from the very beginning, giving back, helping other people, helping Bonnie. It's been all those threads go through your, your whole life. And oddly enough, because of what happened that day in October. Well, you know, something good has to have come out of my assault. And I can really say, and I mean this, I'm not sorry that I was assaulted because of the good that has come out of it. I mean, look at the people that I have met and have become friends. Yes. The list goes on and on, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh, my goodness. There's too many to mention. But, you know, Paul Holes, Nancy Grace, my sister survivors, Debbie and Michelle and Margaret, just so many people from the Sacramento Police Department, Carol Daly, Larry Crompton, Nick Shelby, you, (laughs) so many, you know, the list goes on and on. Last year, when we were at CrimeCon, we had a meet and greet after we had spoken on stage with Paul Holes. And so many women came up to us, and and not just myself, but but Debbie, and I think uh, Margaret was there. And they just were so grateful for the ways that we've helped them. And I'm thinking, oh, wow. Yeah. And I, oh, wow. I, I'm just so happy to hear that, you know, that, you know, we can inspire to not just get help. I was just thinking back. The first time that we met was at CrimeCon in 2018. Two weeks after his arrest, and everybody was seemed to be still walking on cloud nine. And I heard you and Debbie Domingo and Margaret Wardlow speak, and I think Michelle Cruz was there. Yes, she was. Michelle was there. And talked about Janelle, her sister, who was a victim. Oh. I think the last one. I think that was 1986. This is last victim. Mm -hmm. Last year, I got to hear you five years later. And while you were talking, I was sitting in the audience. I was on podcast row and I didn't get to attend very many sessions, but I did attend that one. You guys were talking and again, it was still very upbeat for talking about these terrible murders and rapes and this monster. There were people sitting next to me crying. Oh, you're kidding. Yeah. They were not crying from sadness. It was relief. It was happiness for you. At first, I was like, you know, is this another victim, you know, sitting next to me? And they're like, no, no, I'm so happy for these ladies. I'm so happy that they're together. And that's what it was about. So you were still bringing a very positive message to people. So, yes, you really do have an impact still. Well, I'm glad to hear that. We had our meet and greet afterwards. Quite a few of the women just kept thanking us. And, I, you know, it didn't, hadn't really hit me as much before, but it did that day. And I thought, wow, we really are encouraging these women and supporting them in some sense. So, you know, keep it going. Yeah, that was pretty powerful. Neat. It was powerful. It was powerful to hear them and, and to realize that you do make a difference. And we have made a difference. Mm-hmm. That's what it's all about, paying it forward. As I, as I've said before, Turn your mess into a message. Mm -hmm. Turn your pain into power. Indeed. 
I think I said this in one of the episodes that it was the best lemons to lemonade story I had ever heard. All of you coming together and doing it your way. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for all of it. Well, well, thank you, Jill. I appreciate you and I appreciate what you're doing. And I hope what we've said on this podcast will, again, help other women not be afraid to come forward. Please go to the Rape Crisis Center right away. Don't wait. We are doing better with rape counseling 40-something years later. I think you're responsible for a lot of those changes that were put into place for women. Well, I thank you for that. But this gal, Chris Petretti, who was raped in December, mine was in October of 76. Hers was in December. She has just done so much for her victims. She was responsible for setting up a safe room for victims where they can explain what happened to them in a very safe, warm, and comfortable environment. Yes. You know, I want to I want to uh, go ahead and next year nominate her for Hero of the Year. She would be a great candidate. I did mention Chris Hedretti's story and her impact statement in, I think it was the third episode. I wish I could have covered all of them, but y- you can't. And I included some of the, the men because they were left feeling emasculated, tied up, dishes on their back, hearing the rape going on unable to do anything to defend, and they were just as much victims and traumatized. Thank you for that. They need to to get help. Go to the Rape Crisis Center right away. Husbands should get counseling as well. That's one of the things that you have in, in the book as well, and I alluded to a few of them, not all of them, which is, again, murder bookies, why you need to read the book, but advice for the rape victim, but also... Don't say, just forget about it. Move on. No. Oh, my goodness. Can you imagine keeping that inside of you for years? No. For years. Oh. Inside of me for three months. That was enough. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, my dear friend. Well, thank you. And I'm looking forward to seeing you at CrimeCon. Absolutely. We are going to have a wonderful time. I will see you before you know it. All right. Thank you, Jane. Well, I am honored to have been able to share Jane Carson Sandler's story, her books, The Positive Attitude, shared by so many survivors of the East Area Rapist. I think Jane Carson Sandler is a trailblazer whose unselfish service helped create more survivor thrivers. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Jane and our little bit of banter back and forth and some of the more serious moments as well. She shared many insights and wisdom. And I know she's going to go out and continue to make a difference. No surprise here, but you really need to read the book. Seriously, read this one. I also have to share that your feedback has been so welcomed, so heartfelt. So thank you. I appreciate it. To make a donation to Hope Haven of Low County Child Advocacy and Rape Center, Buford, South Carolina, there is a link on my blog at www.murdershelfbookclub.com. Oh, and I have a wonderful announcement. CrimeCon 2024 is in Nashville, May 31st to June 2nd. If you plan to attend and you have not gotten your CrimeCon badge, you can use my code, all lowercases, MURDERSHELF, and save 10%. And my next book, 
is Murder on Elm Street by Jeremy L. Lubberts, the retired detective on this controversial case. When two teenage cousins break into a residence on Elm Street in Little Falls, Minnesota, a true-life horror story unfolds. More than 24 hours after the two teenagers lose their lives, Detective Jeremy Lubberts responds to a suspicious activity complaint at the same Elm Street residence, beginning a case that will forever alter his life and embroil his community and the nation in debate over just how far people can go to protect themselves in their own homes. I remember when this went down, but I had no idea what actually happened. So we are going to go down the rabbit hole on this one. Thank you for listening, Murder Bookies. I see you as you hear me. All right, please do this right now. Take a few minutes to leave an awesome review. It really makes a difference. Share your thoughts with me at jill at murdershelfbookclub.com or on X, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or for $4 a month, you can join Patreon and we can do our deep dive Zooms together. Spring designs are out on my Murder Shelf Book Club spread shop, so you can get your merch in time for CrimeCon. Links are on my blog at www.murdershelfbookclub.com with my sources, photographs, show notes, and our snack recipe and wine pairing too. Always trust your gut, lock your doors and windows. I see you as you hear me, and I'll see you at CrimeCon. Written and produced by Jill, all rights reserved. Music by Carl Hosanna and lyrics by Otto Harbach. Oh, uh-huh.